open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. These fellows have some Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention and they'll slip one to you so that you can follow along as we look at Ephesians 5. And we'll be making reference to the outlines that are inserted in your program. So if you could take that out, we'll be mentioning it as we go along. We are several months into our series in the book of Ephesians. The title for the series is on the screen behind me. It's Your Place in God's Plan. And this morning concludes a major section of the book of Ephesians, a section that's devoted to describing what a transformed Christian life looks like. The transformation that makes one a Christian is described in chapters 1 through 3. And in chapters 1 through 3, we've seen that God does a work in us that extends to before we were born. In fact, it extends to before the world began, chapter 1 tells us. And we're told that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in this transformative work by planning and executing and applying all that's necessary for us to have a relationship with God. And as a result of God's gracious work in our lives, it's gracious because it's not something that we earn, it's not something we deserve. Because of this gracious work in our lives, we then are to respond by giving our lives to Him and for Him. And so chapters 4 through 6 then build on what is taught in chapters 1 through 3. And there's a transition in verse 1 of chapter 4. I urge you then, as a prisoner for the Lord, verse 1 says in chapter 4, then because of all of that stuff in chapters 1 through 3, now here's what you should do. And what follows then are instructions that tell us we should live a life that's consistent with the calling that we've received. That consistent life, consistent with the calling that we've received, described in chapters 1 through 3, is a life that displays unity and holiness. Verses 1 through 24 tell us. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, it gives us the necessity of unity in the lives of those who have been changed by God. And that unity is necessitated because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all perfectly unified. And then in verse 17 through verse 24 of chapter 4, we're told of the necessity of holiness in the lives of those who have been changed by God. And verses 22 and 24 tell us in chapter 4, then, if we're going to live these consistent lives, we have to put off certain traits and characteristics. And we have to put on other traits and characteristics. And all of this is about what verse 24 says that a new you is being created by virtue of what is being discarded and what is being put on. A new you and a new me that verse 24 says is, quote, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we've been looking at what this new you looks like. We've seen that if we're going to be successful in our pursuit of being like God, that is being like Christ, it will mean that we dress accordingly. And so I called that dressing for success. And you see that in your outline. 
And in verse 25 of chapter 4, we saw the new you wears truth. And then we saw the new you wears peace and generosity and grace. And last week, we saw that the new you wears love. And today is the final of these six things, these six articles of clothing, if you will, that the Bible says we will don if we are going to increasingly look like Jesus Christ. And so today, from chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the new you puts on purity. Now notice chapter 5 and verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Let's ask our God to help us as we look at this final article of clothing that is to characterize the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, again, we thank you for the blessed opportunity to gather as your people in your presence. We thank you for your word that tells us about you and about ourselves and about what you have done for us and about the standard that you have for your now holy people. But Lord, we know from the outset we cannot, we cannot do this of ourselves. We need your aid. We need your aid to help us to have clear minds. We need your aid for open hearts and for implementation of the things we learn in your word. We ask you to grant this so that we can better reflect your image. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 3 of chapter 5 begins this way. But among you. Now, even before we look at what follows, you have to notice there's a strong contrast there. There's you, those of us who have been called by Jesus. There's you who are being transformed by Jesus. There's you who profess the name of Jesus. But among you who fit in that category. And the implication is there's you and there's everybody else. And you're not everybody else. But among you, we're going to see it's going to be different in this particular realm that's going to be described. Why? Because you're to reflect the image of a God who is holy, and holy means different, holy means set apart. And therefore, you have been called to be different, set apart, holy. Chapter 2 told us what we were, all of us, at one time. Verse 2 of chapter 2, notice. You used to live in a manner that followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so it starts out in verse number 3, but among you, to make the strong contrast once again between you and everybody else who have not come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and are not experiencing this transformative work. 
but among you there must not be. We will see. Now, why is it so necessary to be different? To be apart? Well, the Bible has much to say about the world or being worldly. And most of it is, is negative. Let me give you a sampling. The Bible says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where it says elsewhere, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It says still, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And famously, John says in 1 John, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so when chapter 5 and verse 3 starts, but among you, it's reminding us of this problem with the world out of which you have been called and from which you are to be apart. And that's why I say in the first point in your outline that if we're going to be pure, purity requires separation from a fallen world. This purity to which we are called requires separation from a fallen world. Now, when I say separation from, I'm going to show that the realm in which we are to live these holy lives is indeed the world, the physical world. So when I say separation from, I don't mean remove ourselves and isolate ourselves. Quite the contrary. But we, there is a sense in which we must separate ourselves from the world, and I want to make sure that we know what that is. How is it that we avoid the world since, in fact, we live in it? Elsewhere, the same one who wrote this letter to the Ephesians wrote a letter called 1 Corinthians. Paul, who wrote it, says this to the Corinthians. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, because in that case you would have to leave this world. So Paul, who wrote that and wrote what we're considering in Ephesians chapter 5, is saying, this is where you live, this is where you're going to be, but you still must be different from, apart from, the world. Jesus addressed this issue on the night before he died, when he prayed with regard to his first followers and then those who would follow after them, you and me. Jesus prayed to the Father, these are in the world but they are not of the world. You see, friends, the problem with the world is not being in it, but rather it is being of it. In fact, the world, as used in the passages that I've quoted, does not refer primarily to a place, but rather to a false system of belief. The world can be defined this way, and I'm quoting from someone else. The world is... The thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations 
that are at any time current in the world, which at every moment of our lives we inhale and inevitably exhale. To put it another way, the world is the ocean in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. And all that is represented by the fallenness of the world. The Bible teaches that clearly there's something wrong with the world, and therefore it teaches clearly we must avoid being contaminated by it, but how? And Jesus gave the answer to that in that same prayer the night before he died where he said, you're in the world, but not of the world. He then added this. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How is it, what is the means by which you and I are going to be different, apart, separated from the fallen values in the world, expressed in the world? How's that going to happen? You're going to be sanctified, and that word sanctified means be made holy. When Jesus prays sanctify them, he says make them holy. Make them different by your truth, and it's your word that is truth. So we have constant exposure to the contrast between God's standard and that with which we are confronted regularly as we are in the world. Now this whole idea then of among you being different, apart, separate goes back to chapter 2. We've looked at verse 2. And in verse 2 of chapter 2 where it says, you used, to, you used to walk in the ways of the world. When it says you used to walk in the ways of the world, it uses two words in that one verse. In fact, it's the only place in the Bible where these two words are used together. They're used separately all over the New Testament. But there are two words that are translated world. One is cosmos. Many of you are familiar with that. So the world is the cosmos. It is the cosmos means arrangement. So you've heard me say cosmetics means trying to make an arrangement. <laughs> you know, good luck with that. So we get our word cosmetics from that. And cosmos means the arrangement of the world that is contrary to, to God. But then there's a, another Greek word. It's aeon. We get our word eons from it. And it's often translated world as well. And it refers to a particular time in which those fallen values are being expressed. And all of us are immersed in the age, the aeon, the era in which we live, in which fallen values of the cosmos are being expressed. And we are tempted to imbibe those. And God calls us to be different from the surrounding culture in a number of ways. But it's to happen while we are in the world without being of it. And this difference in our lives is going to be seen starkly against the backdrop of the darkness of the culture. Scripture speaks often of Christians shining as stars, as lights in the universe. Sometimes we get afraid, let's be honest. As we look at the surrounding culture as it declines in its mores and in its values. And we see the expressions of that, particularly those of us that have children. But I tell you, dear friends, we need not fear. 
because the light of Christ will shine all the more brightly. As his people understand that we have been called to be different and that difference is to be seen in the world while we are not of the world. And we do not seek in fear to cower and isolate ourselves from the world. As I see so many well-meaning Christians try to do. This is the end of college football season. For those of you that are college football fans, I think tonight they announce who's going to what bowl games. One of the criteria that they consider regarding what bowl you're going to get to go to is what they call strength of schedule. Who'd you play? Did you play anybody any good? You could have won all of your games, but you'd, you played all cream puffs. And somebody who lost four or five games may be better than you because they played great teams. And so they take that into consideration. Now hear this, hear this. This Christian life is not an intramural game. It's not a game that just Christians play. Comparing ourselves to one another. It's not played in isolation. But rather it is played on the field of the world, but on God's terms. It's on the turf of the world but under God's rules for the Christian. And if you seek, friends, to take yourself out of the world and isolate your kids and protect them completely from everything that could possibly happen in the world, understand this. You can take the individual out of the world, but you cannot take the world out of the individual. These are internal matters of belief and value. And we are physically located in the place where this contrast occurs. Now, the subject matter in verses 3 and 4 is sexual purity. And among you, you are going to pursue this area, like all other areas, differently than the world does, is what we're being told. Now, with this issue of sex, we tend toward extremes, as we do with most other things. We don't talk about it at all to our children and in our churches. So that as a result, unfortunately, many of our kids have to learn about sex from the wrong people in the wrong way, in the locker room very often. Or we go to the other extreme, and all we do is talk about sex so that even in church sometimes it sounds like a locker room. And I'm not making that up, as you'll see a little bit later. And the Bible neither ignores nor profanes sex. We should talk about it. We should train our children regarding it. But we should do so in the reverent way the Bible does, as we will see. So purity requires separation from a fallen world. And it also requires, secondly in your outline, devotion in a fallen world. Purity requires separation from and devotion in a fallen world. Verse 3 of chapter 5, Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Now, I have titled this message, you see at the top there, Holiness in the Locker Room? <laughs> because the world is, as it were, the locker room. And we're surrounded by all of the debasing and the coarseness 
that the worldly culture foists upon us. And we are called to be holy, not outside the locker room, but in the locker room. But we have to be careful, says verse 3. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. We must be careful because, as one has said, of evil, that it's seen too often and familiar with his face, we first endure, then pity, and then, if not careful, embrace. And so as we talk appropriately about this important matter, we do so very carefully and reverently. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Why are we careful? Because God is careful in how he talks about this important matter. Friends, do a cursory reading through your Bible and see how God talks about this. You have an entire book in the first part of your Bible, Song of Solomon, devoted to marital intimacy. And you see the way God speaks about sex in poetic language, showing its great importance, but also showing the reverence that we need to have for this important topic. The words that are used in verse 3 are important for us to understand. Among you, there must not be even a hint of, and then it says, sexual immorality. And that's a translation of a Greek word, porneia. You're familiar with that, aren't you? We get pornography from it. Among you, not a hint of anything pornographic, sexually immoral. Another word is used or any kind of impurity. You all familiar with the word when, when somebody says they had a, a cathartic event, kind of a, a catharsis is a cleansing? Well, this is the word from which we get catharsis, a cleansing, but it's the negative form of that. Instead of being pure and clean, it's impure. And so we, there's not to be even a hint of anything pornographic, anything sexually immoral, anything impure, unclean in the lives of God's holy, holy people. And then another word is used, or of greed. It's the word for covetousness. In fact, in verse 5, do you all see verse 5 of chapter 5? In verse 5 of chapter 5, that one who is greedy is called an idolater. You see that? And here's why. Because verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 are all about what we want, what we desire, what we covet, what we lust after. And lust is not just, just used of sex. It's anything that we intensely, any, anything or anyone we intensely desire. In this context, it's about sex. And so the one who is, who is greedy is an idolater because what we covet and desire become more important to us than God in that moment. Do you all understand that when we engage in sexually immoral activity of whatever type, when we engage in impure, unclean activity, that we are expressing a covetousness that is idolatrous because we want that person or that thing more than we want the approval of God? One of the TV ads for Calvin Klein's obsession portrays this idea of 
greed, intense desire, covetousness. The camera focuses close up in black and white and on an intense, lustful male face. And then it has superimposed on it an amber flame which becomes the amber bottle of obsession and then he intones his desire. And here's what our God says. It's my will, God's will, that you should be, and see that word, sanctified. And that word sanctified again means holy. It's God's will that you be holy, different. Colon, you all see the colon? So how? How am, I, how am I holy? Well, here's one of the ways you're holy. You avoid porneia, sexual immorality, same thing. And that each of you learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. Notice, not like among you, because you're different, not like the heathen who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, dear friend, you cannot live a holy life if you hang around and flirt with and imbibe that which is unholy. You cannot. And I cannot. I read the story of a mom who made some cookies and she put them in the jar, and she told her children, no one touched those cookies until after dinner. A little bit later, she heard a jar open. She said, what's going on in there? And she heard a voice meekly say, I have my hand in the jar resisting temptation. And the truth is, we have open cookie jars all around us. We've got open cookie jars that they didn't know anything about at the time this was written. TV is an open cookie jar. That if you do not use discretion and you put your hand in there, you will succumb. And if you turn off the television, there's always the open magazine, or the cover, the billboard. And when all of that's removed from the jar and we imbibe and we partake, their sweetness soon turns to rot. And the decay is shared by the hand that plucked those out, resulting, as one commentator has said, in gangrene of the soul. And these verses, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, are addressed to Christians, now get this, who had come to Christ while they were living in the notoriously sinful city of Ephesus. In that wicked metropolis, the dominant religion was the worship of the multi-breasted goddess Diana, a fertility goddess. And ritual prostitution was a way of life. And at that time, there was a cultural acceptance of sexual perversion as a valid, even exalted way of life. Ephesus is a model of any of the great cities of today's world. San Francisco, Berlin, Hong Kong, Moscow, Detroit. And the suburbs 
where most of us are from, are microcosms of what takes place there. And so God says, among you, you're different. You're called to be holy. Not even a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed. These are improper. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, be in the apartment of a fellow who was attending seminary. I didn't know this guy, and, uh, but I was invited to uh, his place. And as I walked in, I uh, saw his television prominently in this little studio apartment. And on the top of his television, he had taped a text from a verse from the Psalms. And this is what he had taped on his television. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. Here's a guy who every time he turned on his television wanted to be reminded of what Job had said in the book of Job. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a girl. That's what Job says. Let me ask you, friends, what do you watch? And on what standard do you make your choices? What do you read? Are you immersed in, dabbling in pornography that is so easily available today? Oh my, so easily available today? There was a day when if you wanted to engage in that kind of activity, you had to go usually to a seedy part of town. You had to ask for a magazine from somebody from behind a counter or have it sent to your house in a brown paper bag, and you had to hide. We now live in a day when you can do it with remote, right? And as a result, there has been an explosion, explosion of addiction to pornography. The explosion of sensuality in our culture has had and continues to have devastating consequences. It is impossible to watch or read sexually explicit material and not have your sensibilities altered. And the once taboo becomes acceptable. And what we wouldn't have tolerated in our living rooms is now okay. And yet God says, among you, not even a hint. Men, I'm talking to you now as a man who has two daughters. Do you monitor what is allowed into your home through the airwaves? Do you monitor what your girls wear? I mean, really, guys, you really want your girl looking sexual? She wants that. She's immersed in the culture. She needs you to tell her why. God has something better for her. She needs you, Mom, to tell her why and model before her why God has something better for her. And if we go down this road, it has these sorts of negative consequences. Women become objects rather than cherished image bearers. You think about the world. Remember, among you, you're different, and then there's everybody else? Well, think about the world for a bit. 
I mean, what is the world really going to, going to do? As it looks at others and looks at how it's going to interact with others. Those who have not come to Christ, they're not going to look at them as the image bearers that they are, right? By definition. So now they will be looked at as tools, as objects to be used for our own pleasure. Sometimes we think of those who are non-Christians and we think they don't have the spirit. So they're sort of like animals. You know, animals have bodies, but, but they don't have eternal spirits. And we think those who are not saved don't have a spirit. That's wrong. They absolutely have an eternal spirit. They're made in the image of God, a marred image, albeit, but still made in the image of God. And here's what that means. Very often, they think and act like animals, but it's worse because they have the creative capacity to distort and destroy that which they use. Dangerous indeed. And we're going to, we God's holy people are going to imbibe that in any measure? Our wives and daughters are constantly told that beauty requires collagen injections, silicone implants, and color and clothes and styles and ad infinitum and ad nauseum. One of the largest problems reported by teenage girls is their obsession with how they look. And it's not just consequences for the ladies. Many men have so been so inundated and they've drunk so deeply from this moral swamp that their view of beauty has been tainted. And the airbrushed images constantly run through their minds such that inner beauty does not satisfy. I don't claim to be the authority to tell anyone what to do with personal decisions. But I can say this, friends, without fear of contradiction. And I do so, I hope, in the context of friendship and pastoral care. The truth is we, we care way too much about how we look. We spend way too much time, money, money, and energy trying to attain the look. And when we do, we take resources that should be poured into more important matters and we put them into that, now get this, that which is ultimately empty, meaningless, and vain. It is called vanity for a reason. Did you know that? And I encourage you to consider the effects that our sensual culture has had upon you. How do we... What do we do to avoid it? It all starts with our desires, which issue in our thoughts and then in turn in our actions. The verse I quoted just a bit ago, I think I can pull it back up here. Yes. It says that we are to, in the middle of that verse, we're to control our own bodies in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. The word lust is the word for desire, and our desires are the fountain from which all else flows. So what must we do? The Bible says do this, whatever is true, and whatever is noble, and whatever is right and pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think upon such things. Above all else, guard your heart. 
for it's the wellspring of life. One songwriter put it this way, guard your heart, don't trade it for treasure, don't give it away. As a payment for pleasure, it's a high price to pay. For the soul that's sincere and a conscience that's clear, guard your heart. Purity requires separation from a fallen world. It requires devotion on our part in a fallen world. And lastly, in your outline, purity requires discretion in a fallen world. Notice verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Obscenity is dirty language. And that's probably obvious for everyone who's, who's in here. But the next one is foolish talk. And the Greek word is morologia. It's a compound of two words. We get our word moron from it. And logia means, means speech or talk. It's moronic talk, foolish talk. Talking in ways that are unbecoming, even hinting and flirting with our tongues and the way we talk in ways unbecoming of Christians. The Bible says the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. It talks about coarse joking. And avoiding coarse joking. Understand this. The Bible commends laughter. And laughter is, is good. A cheerful heart is good medicine, the Bible tells us. But coarse joking is the kind of stuff you see at night on the stand-up comedian shows. Or it's the stuff that we watch on Seinfeld. Did you hear that? It's the stuff Seinfeld jokes about. Fits the category of coarse joking. Or it's the stuff that we brought into our churches. Because the church wants so much to, to reach the world, we think we have to do that by being like the world. And we've got churches all over this country doing that, friends. Did you know that? Some of you know the name Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll did a series of messages on the Song of Solomon in which, in my view, not just my view, people are smarter than me, a la John MacArthur, he took the Song of Solomon and the poetic and respectful imagery there and he brought it into street language. Well, you know, God used that language for a reason, Mark. But Mark brought it into street language. Mark says he gets visions sometimes. And when he's counseling people, he sometimes gets a vision from God and he tells a story of getting a vision from God, having a husband and wife in front of, them, in front of him who are having problems, and he gets a vision from God that this woman had had an affair. And the Holy Spirit, says Mark, gave him this vision. And the Holy Spirit showed him the hotel room and them entering the hotel room and them undressing and what they did, and he described it for that for that couple. Now this is supposed to be the same Holy Spirit who uses very careful language in the book that he wrote. But he gives Mark very graphic images that he repeats. 
Or, and this is just a bonus, you have Perry Noble, a megachurch pastor in Ohio, I think, who started his Easter service playing Highway to Hell in the background. <coughs> Friends, if you think that the degradation of the culture is not infiltrating the church, you haven't looked very far. And it starts by infiltrating our lives and the lives of God's supposed to be holy people and then makes its way into the church. And so I ask you. The Bible says in verse 3, but among you there must not be. And so I ask you, who are you? You are God's holy child. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. You do not behave the way everyone else behaves. Why? Because Jesus <coughs> has made... I need something to drink. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I heard a humorous clip from Oral Roberts years ago. You all know who that is? Something went wrong with his microphone so that people couldn't hear him. And he said there's demons in the wires. So these are demons in the vocal cords. Thank you. My, these assistants get prettier all the time. <clears throat> For those that don't know, that happens to be my wife. So. <laughs> Thank you. Who are you? God's holy child. Not like everybody else. Not imbibing what the world dishes out. But how do I say no? We could end this message by simply saying, just say no. But it is not so simple for us. We will only say no when we have a greater yes. We will only turn away from what the world is offering when we have something better. We don't just say no, we need a compelling reason. We will say no if the consequences are worse than saying yes, but that requires that we rationally deliberate and calculate. And we, in these situations, don't do that most often. Or we will say no if the immediate benefits are better than saying yes. But that's not always the case, especially in the near term. Sometimes it requires delayed gratification. We will say no, hear this friends, if we value joy more than pleasure. Our relationship with God brings more joy than temporary pleasure. Do you all remember what the Bible says in Hebrews 11 of Moses? Who was willing to endure disgrace with the people of God rather in, than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We will say no to what the world offers if we believe that what we value is guaranteed to happen. 
I don't need my pleasure in this or that. I find my pleasure in the joy that is guaranteed to be mine by the God who called me. And the question for you and for me is, do we believe that? You get to the point of temptation without thinking the way I have just described. You get to the point of temptation without cultivating the Spirit and and being inundated with the truth of the Word of God. You come to the point of temptation and you don't stand a chance if you have not fortified your soul. Friends, I'm giving you instruction on how to fortify your soul. See that what God offers is more valuable than what the world's temporary pleasures provide. And what God offers is absolutely guaranteed. Do you believe that and do you value that more than what the world gives? Let's bow together.